0: Smiley, and uh, I love, love, love Lupe Fiasco. I'm going to talk to a different Lupe in this hour, uh, but Miles, my board, I'm always trying to find a way to be cute. <laughs> you know, we're talking to a guy named Lupe, so he starts with Lupe Fiasco, but any excuse to play Lupe Fiasco is, uh, is, uh, is a good excuse. Uh, love that brother. Um, I haven't seen Lupe in a while, and he needs to put some new stuff out. Uh, But love, love, love uh, the the genius, the artistic genius of one Lupe fiasco. I'll introduce uh, my Lupe in this hour, along with Hunter, uh, in a moment. Uh, First, some breaking news in case you just tuned in. Well, first, I should tell you, I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm delighted to have you uh, hanging out with us today on our program. What an amazing first hour we just had uh, talking about self-immolation. If you missed any part of that conversation, uh, make sure you check out the podcast when it's posted later today. Uh, But the very notion of self-immolation as an act, an extreme act, to be sure, the ultimate act, to be sure, of protest. But there is a long history of self-immolation as an act of protest, uh, 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 chasing peace uh, in this country and indeed around the world, as we uh, established in that last hour. Uh, Robert McNamara, defense secretary during the Vietnam War, eventually came to realize he was wrong Uh, About the vietnam war and part of what caused that to happen was a brother named norman morrison um, uh, Sat down his one-year-old daughter who was in his hands in his arms Sat her down and then self-immolated just outside the office of robert mcnamara And it got his attention and aaron bushnell self-immolation days ago in front of the israeli embassy Has got our attention and we spend an hour talking about self-immolation as an extreme act of protest in the name of peace, uh, made a distinction between suicide and sacrifice. They are not the same things. Check out the podcast if you missed the first hour. This hour is going to be great uh, as we talk to, uh, uh, to, to uh, two guests, two authors of a new book that I have uh, uh, been waiting to to get into the thick of with them. Uh, but again, first and breaking news, uh, in case you have not heard, we just announced this a moment ago, Mitch McConnell. Will step down as the Senate Republican leader in November after a record run in the job. No person has ever served uh, as Senate leader uh, as long as Mitch McConnell has. Uh, So he's made history in that regard, made made history in other ways that we ain't so happy about. But he has announced uh, that after uh, serving all these years, uh, basically two decades, uh, he is stepping down as Republican leader in the senate he turned 82 last week we of course all know over the last year we've seen him on uh, a few occasions kind of freeze in public freeze at the microphone freeze while he's speaking and so we know he has some health challenges but he has announced that in november in november he will be stepping down from his post Uh, as a leader of Senate Republicans, uh, that news breaking just a little while ago. And in case you did not hear the first hour of our show, we are pleased around here at the Tavis Smiley Show uh, to have announced earlier today in uh, the national media that we are expanding the syndication network that is Tavis Smiley. We are heard all across the country, of course, based here in L.A. on my home station, KBLA Talk 1580. But we announced today that we've done some that we're pretty excited about. We are happy to welcome WHCR 90.3 FM in New York City. We have cracked the big apple. Uh, So we thank WHCR 90.3 FM in New York City. Uh, for carrying this program we thank wol 1480 a.m in the nation's capital washington d.c for adding this program we thank wnov 860 a.m in milwaukee and we thank kjmc 89.3 fm in des moines so the tavis smiley program is growing and in less than six months of national syndication it is a big big deal i say with humility but trust me on this i've been at this for 30 years when you in syndication for less than six months and you've cracked the top three Uh, It's downhill from there, and so we are now heard in New York City, in Los Angeles, and in Chicago, uh, where we've been for quite some time, and we're just delighted uh, to announce today that uh, New York City, Washington, D.C., Milwaukee, Des Moines, and others have picked up this program, and you can uh, read more about it by going to our socials. Uh, But I want to just uh, thank all those stations um, for carrying the Tavis Smiley program. I am humbled. I am grateful. Um, In this hour, a conversation for the hour with reporters Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin about their new book. It's called The Truce: Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party. I just mentioned Mitch McConnell a moment ago and all that he has endured. Just in the last four years uh, regarding his own party, uh, all the ups and downs and the just the drama uh, of the uh, with the advent of Donald Trump uh, and uh, his holding on as a Republican leader all that time. But we spend a lot of time talking about the GOP and the future of that party. I think the time is right now to have a conversation about the future of the Democratic Party. So here's this book, The Truce. It tells the inside story of the tr- of the struggle between Progressives and Centrists Inside the Democratic Party. As you know, I brand my work. I brand uh, everything I do uh, unapologetically progressive, am I? That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I am unapologetically progressive. This book then goes inside the struggle between progressives and centrists in the Democratic Party. Um, Joe Biden was able uh, to unite all these factions in the face of the threat of Donald Trump four years ago. But there's evidence everywhere, as I'm looking at it, that suggests that that fragile peace is fraying. So the question is, can the fragile peace hold this time around? We know that Donald Trump is an existential threat. To this country, Joe Biden keeps telling us, judge me against the alternative, not the almighty. But there's a struggle inside the Democratic Party. And the question, again, is can this fragile peace hold this time around? I will commence my conversation with Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin. My first question is going to be to ask Lupe to tell me about that name, Lupe B. Lupin. I love it. We'll get a, a backstory on that name and then jump into the text. You're listening, and I'm glad about it, to Tavis Smiley.
1: You're listening to Tavis Smiley, Smiley. ranked number 45 on the heavy 100 list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Yeah, 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 yeah. You who do you trust to get at the truth? Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. That's who. The conversation continues right now.
0: The conversation begins right now. I'm pleased to welcome Hunter Walker to this program. Hunter, how are you, sir?
1: good good how are you doing
0: man Man, if i complained i'd be an ingrate i am doing well and uh delighted to have you on the program (laughs) lupe b lupin how are you sir
2: i'm doing great and thank you so much for that intro it's it's a pleasure to be here
0: no i'm glad to have you tell me tell me the backstory of that name i I love the name lupe b lupin how'd that come to be i know your mom and daddy of course has something to do with it tell you about that name it's really fascinating (laughs)
2: Well, you won't be surprised to hear that many of my conversations start out with explaining my name. Yeah. Um, it's a Dutch name. It's uh, it's actually been in my family for eight generations. Um, so I, we all have different middle names, but I'm Lupe Bush Lupin. My, my dad's Lupe Ridgeway Lupin. My grandfather was Lupe Hodgson Lupin. Um, and it goes back through eight of us. Um, so it's passed down from father to son like a... I guess a
0: little mild form
2: of
0: child abuse. A mild mild form. I love that. A mild form of child abuse. Well, I love it, man. I, I, I tell you a funny story. When I uh, when I was a kid, I, I hated my name. I hated the name Tavis. I don't know why my mama named me Tavis, and people call you people call you Travis all the time. It's, there's no R in it, so I hated my name Tavis. I was a, I was big Michael Jackson of the Jackson Five. I loved them back then. So I, I love loved Michael Jackson so much. I wish my name had been Michael. I wanted my mama to call me Michael, not Tavis. And then as as fate would have it, years go on, uh, and I end up in this broadcast career on television and radio as an author and all the stuff that I've done. And I love my name, Tavis Smiley, because it stands out. Like there is no other Tavis Smiley. Uh, and as a media personality, it kind of worked for me. So I hope that over the years you've grown to love Lupe B. Lupin, <laughs> even though it may be a mild form of uh, of, of child abuse. I, I I take your point. All right, let's let's jump in it. You, you know, you know,
3: Tavis, if, if I could, sure, if I could continue with the theme here. You know, first <laughs> off, you know, there is only one Tavis Smiley. You're a legend. We're glad to be on with you. And, you know, we wrote this book about the inside story of the struggle between Democrats and, and you know, uh, the left and, and the center of the party. And, you know, I had to write it with Lupe because yeah. his name is not just Lupe Lupin. He's Lupe B. Scoopin'. He gets all the info, <laughs> you know, and I'm glad you introduced us with Lupe Fiasco because the tale of this relationship between the left and the center has really been a story of kick, push, kick, Push, and away they go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, this is uh, this is all too
0: much. It is all too much, and I ain't even gotten to the book yet. So <laughs> uh, I, I love these guys. It's going to be a great conversation, uh, and uh, I'm delighted to have Hunter and Lupe on this program talking about their new book. It's called The Truce. Let's jump right in. So uh, I'll start with you, Hunter, and you guys can you know chime in as, as as you will. But as I said a moment ago, it seems to me that Joe Biden either was lucky or good you tell me that he was able to unite these factions uh progressives and centrists he was able to unite these factions to defeat donald trump four years ago i don't know if that fragile piece is going to hold we'll get to that as we move through this hour but let me let me just go backwards before we come forward and that is with this question how did joe biden pull this off four years ago again was he just that good or was he lucky to be running against a guy named donald trump
3: well, I think you're you know, you're starting with a great question, is Joe Biden lucky or good? Mm-hmm. Right? And our book, which which, you know, aims to cover a story that frankly has not been told enough. You know, Donald Trump has been such a unique figure in American history, he's such a, a threat to the American order as we know it, that he tends to take up all of the oxygen in the room. And so we see so much reporting on what's been going on in the GOP. But at the same time, as much as Donald Trump was essentially putting the country through an identity crisis, the Democrats were having this identity crisis of their own. Um, And we wanted to make sure that that story was told as well. Uh, So when we kind of dug in, you know, in our research, we found numbers really supporting the idea that um, the rift between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders Is actually a big part of what got us Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a decisive number of Democrats stayed home in the 2016 race, you know, after that sort of fraught contest. And we're not the only ones who feel that way. Uh, In our reporting, we found that President Obama was consumed with this idea that that split had, you know, enabled the Trump presidency. Uh, and also, as you'll recall, Obama had backed Clinton uh, in the 2016 race. What we found is that, you know, Biden and his allies felt that Obama didn't, you know, tell him not to run, but he pushed him to make the decision very quickly at a moment when Biden was dealing with the death of his son. So he felt kind of shooed off the stage. Now, you know, the flip side to that is is Biden tends to really – Take his time with those decisions. We mm-hmm. saw that all oh, play yeah. out with his announcement oh, yeah. <laughs> in the past year. Yep. But but you know, to answer your question about lucky or good, Biden's always trusted his political instincts. And in twenty sixteen that culminated with this phone call that we report for the first time in the book um, that is one of really the greatest, I told you so, moments in history. And it's one thirty in the morning. Donald Trump has just won this shocking victory. Biden's vice president, he's in the Naval Observatory. He calls Obama at the White House. And according to all our sources, Biden said, I told you, boss, people just don't like her. So Biden has always trusted his instincts. Mm. He's always felt he was underestimated. And he had some lingering bitterness about being underestimated in 2016 fast forward to 2020 he gets in the race he believes he's got this compelling message about the soul of the nation he's very animated by charlottesville right but i think people also forget bernie sanders came really close to winning and mm-hmm. you know we report in the book how it was a lot closer than people even realize i mean the chaos in iowa uh, as the caucus app exploded was worse than i think anyone realized the result was was never clear and it hurt bernie uniquely uh, because his campaign strategy was almost wholly based on at least having a definitive result of some type in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that really took him out. So Biden got really lucky with that. COVID, I think, made America really want someone familiar. And it also, you know, knocked out Bernie's sort of young ground game, uh, his army of volunteers. And that really did help Biden. Then, of course, once he secured the nomination, he very smartly did this work that we detail in the book to heal the rift that, you know, Obama and others were so worried about in 2016. And he engaged in a lot of deft politics Mm -hmm. to, I think, put together his own version of the Obama coalition and defeat Donald Trump.
0: So is he good? Is he lucky or is he both? (laughs)
3: <laughs> I would say he's both, I mean, he both. So I mean like anything else. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Lupe, let me let me ask you this. Um, so I, I love the the frame. Hunter, thank you very much, my friend, for the frame you put us in. Uh, uh, Hunter starts with 2016. He jumps to 2020. Let me jump now to 2024, and then we'll go back, Lupe. But the question in real time, 2024, <laughs> is whether or not we're going to see this time around what Hunter says we saw in 2016, where a lot of Democrats stayed home. I take you to Michigan, where that number mm-hmm. of uncommitted votes shocked a lot of people I, I hope it got joe biden's attention uh the the percentage of uncommitted um in in michigan uh he didn't fall uh he didn't fall prey uh, he didn't fall down like nikki haley did to uh, in nevada of course to uh, to a ghost candidate uh doing better than she did but the question is whether or not in 2024 we're going to see a repeat of 2016 with democrats in a race that nobody wants this sequel are they going to stay home
2: well, it's a, it's a huge question, an important question, and I think one that, that we have to evaluate how deftly the Biden campaign practices politics over the next uh, eight months mm-hmm. before Election Day. Uh, you know, the I, I do think that, as you said, it's a really fragile coalition. What we saw in, in 2020, as Hunter said, is that you really have to do the work to reach out to progressives and young people to try to stitch this coalition together. And we do see the tremendous strain that uh, American foreign policy, particularly with regard to Israel and and its war in Gaza, um, has put on uh, Democrats, elected Democrats' relationship with young voters and progressives. And uh, Hunter and I were just talking about this before we we got on the line with you, you know, the the predictions going into Michigan. I'm not sure anyone knew exactly what the turnout numbers would be, but people were talking about 10 or 20,000 people voting for, uh, for uncommitted and it ended up being more than six figures. Mm-hmm. So I think the Biden campaign has to take account of that. Um, and I, I saw some comments from Biden advisors saying, you know, we have to work to earn their votes, um, after last night's results. So I I, 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 get a sense that they are, that, they, that, they, they do have their mind on this pro this project. Um, and I, I know from, uh, from some of our conversations with sources in Obama's world that he's also been focused on young voters since early in the year, um, you know, thinking about how to how to reach out to them, obviously he remains a, a key advisor to Biden. But I, I do think it's there's a, a clear indication from Michigan that there's work to be done here. Um, and whether Biden's able to do that, well, he's got to navigate, you know, the, the politics of Israel and yep. the governing coalition and the world and foreign policy with other world leaders. It's a really challenging, challenging policy, uh, little to solve, but one that I think he has to solve because the politics are... Um, existential for
0: him. Has to solve and can solve are two different things, and I want to come back to this. Um, uh, we'll get back to the book in a second here, but since we're talking about uh, Michigan and what happened yesterday, uh, I think you're right, Lupe, that people were shocked, as I said earlier, by that number of those who voted for uncommitted. It it has to ring a bell inside the Biden campaign, and I hear you. Uh, I heard you say earlier, Lupe, that you've heard uh, that they now know they need to earn those votes. I don't know that they can uh, and here's my here's the frame. Um, we you guys are covering this stuff better than I do every day. You know, the, the this Arab, this Arab American community in, in Michigan said weeks ago that he'd lost he'd lost their vote. There is nothing many of them have said that he can do to earn their vote. Now, Rashida Tlaib has said we're going to vote uncommitted in the primary. and we'll, we'll support Biden in the general. But because she said that doesn't mean everybody's going to do that. Number one. And that's that's that's, that's that, that 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 that's just one issue. The other issue, as Hunter has already laid out is that people could, in fact, stay home. So the question for either of you is whether or not, however deft Joe Biden is or has been, is he good enough at this point to earn their votes and to turn Michigan around? He only won it by three points the last time, Hunter.
3: Yeah, so I, I think you're alluding to what is the most important thing um, about you know, this result that we're seeing in Michigan, this shocking result, um, you know, I know in my conversations today that sort of people in Biden world are, are dismissing this. You know, they're pointing, oh, it's just 100,000 people. But the reality is there are no small numbers in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's <laughs> just 100,000 people. Get out of here. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry, go ahead, Hunter. And... Well, but also it's just a hundred thousand people in Michigan. Well, Michigan is only one of the most important swing states on the entire map. Exactly, right? This yeah. is one of one of the the handful of states where a small amount of uh, you know, for example, a hundred thousand voters essentially delivered Biden the win. Right. Um, we know that, you know, the presidential election plays out in the Electoral College and, and there's nothing more important uh, for a Democrat than essentially, you know, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania and some combination of, you know, Georgia and Arizona. Right. So you cannot dismiss this result. But more importantly, you know, I think what readers of our book will find is we set the stage for why the anger that we're seeing about Biden's policies in Gaza um is so dangerous for him. And what I mean is, you know, we essentially track years of work that was done to heal what, again, we think might have been a decisive rift in 2016 uh, within the Democratic Party. Biden saw that. Biden really addressed it. You know, his young voter numbers uh, surpassed some of what Obama did. He um, had really strong support in communities of color. You know, that is essentially the coalition that helps uh, Democrats defeat the advantage Republicans have in the Electoral College, Mm. right? What we're seeing now is that that very coalition is exactly who is up in arms about Gaza.
1: Young people, according
3: to some polls, um, you know, three-quarters of them disapprove of, you know, how Joe Biden um, has handled The situation in Gaza. Meanwhile, you know, I've been very focused on the racial issue here um, and there isn't a ton of polling publicly on sort of race and Gaza. I can tell you anecdotally, and I'm sure uh, you've seen something similar, people of color are disproportionately upset Mm -hmm. and united in their opposition to this issue. And I would say that includes Arabs, obviously, but it also includes the black community. We've seen reporting from the Times about how black leaders are up in arms, but it also, in in my experience, includes Latinos, right? And I was talking to a progressive operative this morning who was telling me that he's seen non-public polling data in congressional districts, Democratic districts, and the numbers of, of... Arab voters and black voters who are angry about Gaza and potentially considering not voting for Biden are, as he said to me, quote-unquote stark. Uh, furthermore, he'd specifically seen focus group data in Philadelphia, which again, this is Pennsylvania, one of these key states, showing that black voters are extremely upset about Gaza. So to bring it back to your frame, Tevis, is Biden lucky or good? He's been lucky and good. Yeah. But Gaza was bad luck for him that this situation erupted in Israel, and I'm not sure his handling of it yeah. has had sort of the, the astuteness that we've seen so far.
0: I've got two minutes here uh, before we come forward, but I, let me just get this started, Lupe, uh, and you can continue on the other side. But let me let me get you going here, though. Um, uh, you heard um, your your colleague, your co-author, Hunter, mentioned progressives a moment ago. Uh, the title of the book is The Truce progressives, centrists, and the future of the Democratic Party. I don't know. I I speak now as a progressive, uh, Lupe. I don't know if we have been gutted, if we are fatigued, if we feel exploited, or frankly, if we are defeated. What I do know is that the progressives in Congress came out pretty quickly to endorse Joe Biden. My head is still spinning on how fast the aforementioned uh, Bernie Sanders, how fast AOC, how fast these progressives lined up to endorse Joe Biden. I I still don't know how to process that. You wrote the book. How do I process that, Lupe?
2: Well, it surprised us, too. Um, And, you know, we are uh, we were in the in the process of looking around for who was going to be the progressive primary candidate in 2024. And, you know, I think it is a testament. To the work that was done in 2020, that most progressive leaders, all the progressive leaders in Congress, uh, you know, chose not to challenge Joe Biden in this 2024 race, and I think I think those decisions are really taken, at least as I understand it, really in you know, end of 2022, beginning of 2023, and before we really get into this Israel and Gaza. War and that so I think you are you're seeing the the result of a political coalition that number one was built in 2020 and was really powerfully you know successful in a lot of ways in 2022 2021 2022 mostly 2022 um, where they you know passed a bunch of legislation got yeah. a lot of progressive goals accomplished though not as many as, as obviously progressives would have hoped but but they got a lot a lot done and then they had Historically good midterm results, um, not in New York, and we detail that in our in our book. Sure. But around the country, you see lots of uh, lots of lots of Democrats and uh, progressives winning winning their races uh, and, and, and doing
0: well. Let me, let me let me pause there for a second. I hate to cut you off, uh, Lupe. When we come forward, I'll, I'll come right back to this. The book is called "The Truce: Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party." The the authors of that book are Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, who I am honored to have on Tavis Smiley right now.
1: is the Tavis, Tavis Smiley, Tavis Smiley, show. Smiley show. show. Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley
0: and Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, authors of the book The Truce. Progressive centrist and the future of the Democratic Party. Uh, the timing couldn't be more propitious for a conversation about the future of the Democratic Party as everybody's talking about the Republican Party. In case you've uh, not heard, Mitch McConnell uh, has announced today he is stepping down as Senate Republican leader in November. So there's big news out of Washington uh, in uh, the U.S. Senate. Mitch uh, McConnell stepping down in November after serving longer than anybody else uh, as a uh, A leader in the United States Senate. Uh, Back to our conversation now about the truce. So, Lupe, you were talking about, you you were answering my question uh, about progressives and how they got in line so quickly. Uh, Bernie Sanders, AOC, and others got in line so quickly behind Joe Biden, made my head spin. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, but I didn't expect them to come out as quickly as they did. I was thinking during that break, though, about two things. Uh, One, um, as you both know, being brilliant reporters, it's hard to find. It's like they're an endangered species. Hard to find a moderate Republican these days. Uh, every, everybody, Everybody's rabid. Everybody's to the wall. Everybody's part of the MAGA group. So it's hard these days to really find moderate Republicans. I am wondering about the future of people like me, the future of progressives in this country vis-a-vis the Democratic Party, Lupe. Are we going to end up an endangered species?
2: Well, Personally, I hope not. I think progressives have a lot to contribute to the Democratic Party, and I think we've seen a lot of vibrancy in the progressive movement over the last, oh gosh, six years, you know, starting starting in 2018 with the congressional elections and, and carrying through to 2022. I think there are a lot of young progressive leaders in the Democratic Party, and I, I, I don't see them going anywhere. I was thinking over the break, too, about my answer to your question. You know, I think I, what I'd said was that there was, uh, you know, a lot of work done in 2020 to bind this coalition together, and it, it is an exercise in coalition politics, one that you know I think the Democratic leaders had a lot to do with and can take a lot of credit for, particularly Joe Biden's first chief of staff, Ron Klain, mm-hmm. who's not there anymore in the White House. But it's also you know a question of who your opposition is, and I think when you engage in coalition politics, your willingness to continue doing it is a question of your sort of pain threshold dealing with people who you don't agree with on every issue, mm-hmm. and they're in the way that they act, and that. There's, I think, a really high pain threshold for Democrats right now because it didn't come as a shock to anyone that the Republicans are going to nominate Donald Trump to be their candidate for president in this this presidential cycle. And I don't think any Democrats, progressives, centrists, anyone who identifies with the Democratic Party wants to see Donald Trump backing off.
0: Yep. Um, so, Hunter, let me let me come to you on this piece, because, um, again, the subtitle of the book is "Progressives, Centrist and the Future of the Democratic Party. Lupe and I have just uh, engaged in dialogue, of course, about the progressive piece of this. I want to come to the centrist piece. And you took us back to 2016 in your first response, Hunter, framing how this book comes to be and what we're talking about in your book, The Truce." I want to go back before 2016 and ask a very simple question i know as a brilliant reporter you'll recall this you remember that guy named bill clinton and uh the the the, the dlc so so what what what's bill clinton got to do with this conversation about centrist and the future of the democratic party
3: so you know i think bill clinton is a really great example of what is a larger phenomenon here right which is, you know, if you ask Bill Clinton and Hillary, and I think we saw this play out uh, certainly in 2016 and, and a little bit since, they see themselves as progressives, right? And certainly if we go back to, you know, 1992, uh, there was a lot of progressive excitement around Bill Clinton. Um, and I think one of the issues here is this term progressive, Right a lot of people feel entitled to the term, and not necessarily all of them are in agreement. You know, there are a lot of people who, you know, I think South Carolina is a really great example. We've seen sort of the Bernie Sanders wing bristle about South Carolina being moved up the primary calendar. Meanwhile, you know, that is in the primary at least a 70% black electorate. Um, you know, the, the black church community in South Carolina certainly sees themselves as you know, staunch progressives, and they've 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 bled and fought to get there, right? So I think the Democrats are a much more diverse party than the Republicans, um, demographically and ideologically. At this point, um, you see everything from socialists on up to your sort of uh, Clinton New Democrats, and then your you know Josh. Gottheimer and Joe Manchin, these folks we termed the radical centrists that kind of scuttled the Joe Biden agenda. And I think part of what makes Joe Biden interesting, he was in the Senate for such a long time. He is a 50-year veteran of politics. In many ways, he is more from the establishment Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, except at the same time, he problematizes that notion a bit, you know, particularly on the economic front with his sympathies towards unions. He is surprisingly progressive. And then yet, you know, a progressive said to me the other day, um, you know, Joe Biden has been to the left of Obama on everything except Israel. Right. Mm. And this issue is coming up for him. So I think by and large, what we're seeing is that You know, for Republicans, when you have a largely white party that is increasingly taking an authoritarian bent under Trump, uh, going with the strongman model, they are likely to get in line behind a single leader. They are likely to follow orders. That is conservative by nature. Um, And again, it's easier when you have a homogenous, nationalistic group and message right? Democrats have to bring together this complex coalition that includes your Arabs in, in Detroit and your, you know, young people in colleges all around the country and black churches in the South. That is going to be harder work. Um, and that is why it is a little bit more delicate for Biden. But as you've alluded to a bunch of times in this conversation, Tavis, whatever problems he might have his best ally in this may be Trump, because mm-hmm. the one thing I think these Democrats of all various stripes can agree on from, from socialists on, on the way to the middle is that Trump is an existential threat. And he's brought that unity that we saw when sort of all these potential primary challengers to Joe Biden stepped down this year. And if Joe Biden is going to win again, I think he's going to need to be good again. He's going to need luck again. but But, you know, he will also need Democrats to unite
0: around their fear of Trump. Let me ask you you very quickly, and we'll we'll continue when we come forward. Um, For all that Joe Biden is having said about him, for all the pushback he's getting for the uncommitted vote in Michigan, for people not liking his policy regarding Israel and Hamas, for not getting voting rights passed in the Senate, not getting meaningful police reform passed in the Senate, for all the stories about black men who are going to vote for Donald Trump and not vote for Joe Biden, for all of that, when all is said and done, to your point, so long as Trump is the nominee, so long as Trump represents that existential threat that we've referred to two or three times now, um, it, one could argue that you know Joe Biden still um, keeps this coalition together because Trump is the guy running against him. You, you buy that argument?
3: I mean, it's certainly possible. Uh, we, we We've seen him do it once before, but I think you know there are some unique signs of strain. And one I would point out that we haven't discussed as much is that Latino voters yeah. Trump has been improving his margins with them continually, yeah. even though they are you know perhaps the demographic so, most explicitly targeted by him. Yeah. So there's unique strains.
0: No, there are some strains, no question about it. Uh, let me just say this before, before we come forward. Uh, there's no way. <laughs> I love Bill Clinton. I love Hillary. There, I, I consider them both personal friends uh, over over many years. Uh, and there's no way that Bill Clinton or Hillary is a progressive. They're just not progressives. Uh, you cannot be. <laughs> (laughs) You cannot oversee (laughs) moving the Democratic Party to the middle. You can't be the guy behind the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, and at the same time call yourself a progressive. The word is being bastardized in a variety of ways, and we should perhaps at a later time talk about what it means to be a true progressive. But Bill Clinton and Hillary ain't progressives. I love them, but that ain't what they are. When we come forward, we'll talk about the issue that Hunter raised a moment ago about race. You can't talk about the truce progressives, centrists, and the future of the Democratic Party without talking about the Democratic Party's most loyal base, black folk. We'll talk about it on Tavis Smiley.
1: Hope, agency, dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can
0: you
1: dig it? Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. I don't need to
0: color this question uh, too much. Pardon the pun, <laughs> Lupe and Hunter. But you can't talk about the future of the Democratic Party without talking about Black folk. Um, take it away, somebody.
2: <laughs> You're absolutely right. So, oh, go ahead. There's no Democratic Party without the Black folk. Um But uh, I will. I'll let, I'll let Hunter go ahead. Apologies. I uh, jumped in on that one too early.
3: Well, no, you know, I, I, I just want to go back to what you were saying before, Tavis, that I think is really interesting, you know, talking about the move to the middle with, with Bill Clinton. And I would argue, you know, that it stretches back even a little bit further than that. You know, if you look at sort of where Democrats and where the left were um, in the 30s, you know, it was a very union mm-hmm. centric thing. The communist and socialist movements had legit constituencies that I, I, I think we only saw them start to approach again in 2018 but it's still not there and you know in, in fdr you had a president president who you know by and large he looks almost like a squad member you know to <laughs> par- parlance, right and 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 you know what i think is interesting is that when it comes to the black community you know martin luther king and malcolm x i think started to get more into this economic populism after you know um addressing sort of the dire, you know, civil rights threat that was facing their community, they started to kind of bring that conversation into the economic arena. I would argue personally that's when they became more of a threat to the powers that be. And I think we're only beginning to know about what really happened there. I see the work Ben Trump is doing. Yeah. I think a lot more is coming from that front. But, you know, this is essentially sort of the, the, what I would almost term the Richard Wright problem, if you will, mm. where kind of the, the white left has had trouble building bridges to the black community and sort of tying that economic leftism, that class consciousness with civil rights and sort of making a unified coalition. Um, And, you know, where I've seen that is like in 2016 on the trail. Bernie had trouble reaching out to black voters in South Carolina um, because his pitch wasn't culturally fluent. Um, So I think that's a big question is sort of how Democrats can bring together the minority coalition and sort of the socialist left, which does tend to be whiter. As and we've we talked about in our book where we sort of look at the rise of AOC and we look at what's going on in New York, where the DSA and these other activists have had a little bit of trouble speaking to communities of color and connecting yeah. with them.
0: Let me just say this before I come forward here. Um, any white guy. Uh, who in Black History Month or any other time can can uh, can reference Richard Wright is okay by me. <laughs> well, I said, did, did Hunter just say Richard Wright? Uh, you 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 mentioned Richard Wright uh, <laughs> to me. Uh, you 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 earn some 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 bonus points, um, especially doing it in Black History Month. I love that. Um, when we come forward our remaining moments with Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, I want to ask uh, Lupe whether or not, given um, that Hunter just mentioned Ben Crump. Whether or not into the future, uh, vis-a-vis the Democratic Party, whether or not economic or social justice is going to hold primacy at the top of the Democratic agenda. They're intertwined, but they're not the same thing. Um, economic or social justice at the top of the Democratic agenda when we talk about its future. We'll do that when we come forward. in our many moments with the authors of The Truce, Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin
1: on Tavis Mark. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Lupe,
0: baby Lupin, what holds sway in the future of the Democratic Party? Economic justice or social justice?
2: That's a great question. It's one that the Democrats are, are constantly fighting over. And, and I, I wouldn't presume to, to be the absolute authority, but I think the lesson of our book. Um, is that you know, social justice issues are also structural issues, issues about who gets represented, who gets education, who's able to to serve in Congress, and what votes they're able to win, um, and that solving social justice issues is part of building the base to solve economic justice issues, at least as I see it. that it, You look at how the Biden coalition was put together, and they were able to, to defeat Donald Trump, and they were able to pass a lot of legislation, but we also cover in our book... How frustrated they were, both trying to get civil rights and voting rights legislation passed, and also in uh, in you know in in, in moving economic justice um, measures through as well. We see mm-hmm. the structural problems in the Senate. We see the uh, the difficulty with the filibuster, the difficulty of moving things through the courts. And so, I think, I mean, I, it's a probably an unsatisfying answer, but you have to have an all of the above approach if you want yeah. to do either. You have to have economic justice and social justice be making progress, um, and I don't think either one is dispensable.
0: Hunter, you get the last word with about 90 seconds to go here. Um, Our democracy is fragile, there's no question about it. We are on the precipice uh, of something, uh, and every empire in the history of the world, uh, according to my study, uh, has at some point a reckoning. Uh, Joe Biden understands that. He's making the point that this election is about uh, the future of this very democracy. I close by asking uh, not whether or not our democracy is fragile, but how fragile the Democratic Party is.
3: Well, you know, the the story that we've told in The Truths, which takes you behind the scenes of conversations with Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, the Biden White House and others, shows that, you know, the alliance, the coalition that's holding the party together is an extremely fragile one, and as I said, we're sort of we've got an identity crisis in the party as we're facing an identity crisis in the nation. And you know, I would say if you agree that the country is at a dangerous point, then you understand how much the debate characters and overall health of the opposition party is a really important thing to understand. Mm. And I hope readers will find that our book helps them do that like no other.
0: The book is a riveting account. Uh, I can assure you, <clears throat> uh, an amazing account a polemic, frankly, uh, on the recent past, present, and future of the Democratic Party. The book is called The Truce, Progressives, Centrists, and the Future of the Democratic Party. Its authors are two distinguished journalists, Hunter Walker and Lupe B. Lupin, who I've been delighted, uh, honored, in fact, to have on this program. Hunter, all the best to you. Thanks for your time, man. Take care of yourself.
3: Thanks so much for having
0: me. My great delight. Lupe, thanks for having, uh, uh, giving us some, some time today. I appreciate you, man. All the best to you, sir. Thank you sir. I really was an honor to be on. Thank you both. More of Tavish Smiley when we come for.